morning. I was thinking maybe we could do like a Christmas sermon today or something. What do you think? Actually, I, I get to, by the sheer goodness and grace and mercy of God, preach sermon number 168 out of 168 in Matthew's Gospel. All right, this is the first service that clapped. I will take that clap as encouragement to keep going. Anyway, a lot has happened in the last five years. In the most serious of ways, some among us have gone to be with Jesus in the last five years. There are people in our congregation who have met and gotten married in the last five years. And there have been tons of babies born in the last five years. Also, seven iPads have come onto the scene. Four generations of iPads plus an Air and two Minis, all in the last five years. Anyway, since I've been at Grace, I have preached through the, gosp- uh, through, um, the Gospel of Matthew now. Lord willing, we'll finish this sermon. And uh, Hebrews and Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John, among others. And um, I'm excited uh, to be finishing Matthew today because of, of the verses that I get to preach. And... Um, Anyway, we'll get to that, but a lot of people have been asking me what's next, and I love the question. I think it's an awesome question, because it tells me something that I already know about you, that at, people at Grace Orange are hungry for the Word of God, and there's an anticipation about getting into the Word, and there is what I would consider a humble, bold learner's mentality amongst the people at Grace. So I, I, I love that, and um, so the question, what's next, which you probably would like to know, right? Um, The Lord willing, I will be unveiling that in the next few weeks. No, actually, I've been planning out my preaching schedule for 2014, and I am very, very excited and and thrilled about the direction God has given me. And I'll give you a little hint, okay? (laughs) The first half of the year, we're going to... The first (laughs) half... I'm sure you do. So do a lot of people. <laughs> like I used to say, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, no, I'll give you a hint. First half of the year, we'll be um, picking off uh, four or five books of the Bible and going verse by verse through them. So you can figure that out. The second half of the year, we'll be going through one book of the Bible and uh, the Lord willing, by the end of the year, we'll, we will have finished about six books in the Bible. But half, six months of it will be one book. And in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. Okay. Pardon me? Hello? Excuse me? Obviously, this is not the one we're putting up on the internet. <laughs> we're going to do kind of a, uh, you know, we're going to do a little... Uh, <laughs> We have a little give and take here, a little discussion. <laughs> if I see this one more time, I'm going to come over there and strangle you. No, anyway, no, I love it. Are we, are we scoring touchdowns? Is it every time, I make a, every time I make a good point? Touchdown. Okay. All right. I think we should do this every week during third hour. What do you think? Huh? Ah. All right. Okay. So a lot of people are asking me what's next. You know, actually, that is the question that Jesus' disciples were asking after the resurrection. Okay, Jesus, you're risen from the dead. What's next? Now what do we do? 
And what I want to do today really is show you that what is commonly known really across around the globe as the Great Commission is more than what you think it is. More than what you think it is. I remember being in seminary, my first year of seminary, 1985, and the professor says, it was Dr. Jim Rosscup, and he says, open up your Bibles to Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He said, I want you to make observations on that verse. So we took a few minutes, and we're thinking we were all great because we came up with five or ten. By the time he was done with us, we had learned a great lesson. He kept saying, look, go back, look again, look again, look again. And we came up with the biggest list of observations on that one verse. And what I want to tell you is that a lot of times people will say, well, it's the Great Commission, everyone knows this. I'm calling this sermon the Great C3 because besides commission, there's two other aspects of this that are huge. And when you understand them, actually makes the commission all the more great and weighty and magnificent. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. I'm inviting you to stand with me to read God's word. We'll read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So here we go. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Let us remember that this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and that we can be here today as people, many, many of us, saved by grace. And Lord, our lives are in your hands. I know, Lord, that as we want to acknowledge you as Lord today, that many of us are here today We've been overcome by various life situations and relational issues and all sorts of worries and cares that can really get us off point. So Lord, I pray that you would revive souls today. I pray, Lord, that you would change lives. Lord, I pray that your gospel would would shine brilliantly and brightly and clearly and powerfully in our hearts and our lives, our, our households, this, this church, and out to the ends of the earth for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, the question I want to ask today is, what is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and what is its purpose I've already mentioned to you that I think it's much bigger than most of us think. It's more. It's more than what you think it is. There is more here than you think is here. And so I'm really going to challenge you to look and 
to look again and to see details and to see nuances and, and depths in this passage more than you thought was there. It's more than marching orders for the church, though it is marching orders for the church. I kind of see it like a hybrid car. If you drive a hybrid car, it's powered by more than gasoline. And therefore, you get more mileage. It takes you further. And I think that these verses can take us further than we usually think we can go with them. It's kind of like the smartphones we all use. We don't use them for even probably a tenth of their capabilities. They exceed expectations. I want you to be blown away today by, by God exceeding all your expectations as it, as it pertains to what is commonly known as the Great Commission. Here's the way I'm going to put it today. That Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is simultaneously a conclusion, a covenant, and a commission that assures Christ's church of his work in the world and their part in it. That's what I'm going to tell you today, that this is not just a commission. It is a, a conclusion to the whole book. It is a covenant that God is making with his people, that he has made with his people, and it is a commission, and it will be assuring you, it will be assuring me, it will be assuring us that God is at work, and we have a part in it. We who believe have a part in it. One writer said that this passage is the climax of the Gospel of Matthew. Well, that's an obvious point. But he went on to say that this, this passage is the high point, the focal point of the whole New Testament. And he went on to say that it's not only that, but it's the focal point of all of God's Word. And the idea is that the message that this, that this passage is giving really sums up all that God is pointing to about his mission in Christ and what he wants to do in Christ in the lives of people. So let's look at the first. <clears throat> C1, it is a conclusion. It is a conclusion that I am going to show you is summarizing 10 big themes in Matthew's gospel. Yes, 10. Now, this, this series has been called Following the King. Matthew following the king and we've had little series within a series as we've gone through we've looked at the sermon on the mount separately we looked at a lot of things and chapter 10 was how God sends people out Jesus sent his followers out we looked at living in the last days in chapter 24 and 25 and most recently these last three chapters is the undiluted gospel but this is about following Jesus and this is a wrap-up this is a review really of the whole gospel and and i do see 10 dominant themes we'll just go right through these verses and we'll, we'll pick one off one after another okay so verse 16 first of all the 11 disciples go to galilee where jesus had told them to go so it's interesting i think it's great that jesus had them go to galilee it's where they hung out it's where they were from it just makes a lot of sense it's probably where they were and they had an appointment with jesus up on a mountain and the first big dominant theme is mountain Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to the temptation of Jesus by Satan on a mountain. He went up and said, I'm going to give you all of these kingdoms if you just worship me. And you look at the Mount of Transfiguration. And now they're on a mountain. Mountain is a big theme in Matthew's gospel. When Jesus wanted to get away, he went up to a, a quiet place to pray, to have solitude on a mountain. So mountain's a big theme. Second big theme I see is worship. It says that when, he, when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
That's a huge theme in Matthew's gospel. He was worshipped at his, Jesus was worshipped at his birth. The wise men come from, from basically all nations and come and worship Jesus. You've got the disciples worshipping Jesus. You've got people who he healed worshipping him. You've got the women at the tomb after the resurrection worshipping him, holding onto his feet and worshipping him. And now the disciples here giving worship to him as God. So worship is a big theme. Mountain and worship. The third one I'll point out is in the form of a negative. It's right after that. It says they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I'm going to say this. It's doubt and faith. Faith and doubt. Just put faith slash doubt. It's one. It's counting as one. There's not 11 here. It's faith and doubt. I think this is a huge, huge encouragement for us. We who doubt. We who are not perfect in our thinking and our understanding and find a lot of doubts sometimes. To, to doubt is not uh, the most horrible thing in the world. If you had no faith at all, you wouldn't doubt. Doubt proves faith. It's the flip side of faith. Many times Jesus said, look, you're of little faith. Your little faiths, you need to believe. And even when the, when the disciples said, hey, increase our faith. Wouldn't you think that when, when they asked increase our faith, Jesus would say, here's the recipe to get more faith? He didn't. He said, you, you could have faith like a little tiny mustard seed and that's enough because you've got a big God you're trusting. It's not your faith that is the object. It's the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. So little faith is okay. You can have a little faith. You can have uh, as big as a mustard seed faith because God is big. God is great. God is good. But faith and doubt, I mean, where did Jesus find the faith? When we, as recorded in Matthew's gospel, in the centurion, in the woman with the issue of blood, in a lot of people that weren't in the inner circle of followers of his. Where did he see the most doubt? In the disciples. The disciples were the ones that were doubting. That's why he was saying things like, don't be anxious. Seek first my kingdom. Basically, over and over again, as many times as he could, trust me. Seek and you will find. Ask and you'll receive. Knock and the door will be open. It's like, just trust what I'm saying. I'm in control of this thing. And so I think it should come as a great comfort to us that one of the dominant themes in this gospel is faith and doubt. And, and when you look at these verses, it says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And some people take those verses to mean that, well, the 11 worshiped him, but you know when he said in verse 10, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, it's a bigger group of disciples, bigger group of followers, that the 11 worshiped, but then some of the others doubted. But the, way to, the easiest way to take this and where I lean is that they worshiped him and some of the 11 even doubted. That you can be worshiping and doubting at the same time. We know that to be true. That's what we're like. That's our life. But we're believing a great God. We're worshiping a great God. And so our doubts, God can handle them. He's big enough. So mountain and worship and faith and doubt. The fourth is authority. He comes up to them, verse 18, and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Isn't it interesting that when Satan took him on that high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, he said, "Uh, If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you these. Satan could only offer earth. He couldn't offer heaven. Jesus is saying, I got all authority in heaven and on earth. I am the absolute sovereign authority. I have lordship over all. It's been given to me. It's proof of his, one more proof of his deity that he is God. I grew up in a church that, that 
when I was a kid that denied the deity of Christ. One of the reasons why I'm so strong on the fact that you need to believe that Jesus is God. So many times in the scriptures, even here, when he says all authority, he's saying, I'm God. Trust me, I'm, I'm God. So there's authority. Absolute authority. The Sermon on the Mount, they get to the end, and he, and he ends, and, and, they, and it says that they were blown away because he was teaching as one having authority and not as their scribes. Their scribes taught on someone else's authority, on all the people that went before them. Kind of name dropped all the time. Jesus dropped his own name. <laughs> Jesus was teaching on his own authority. And then there was wind and waves and the, and the elements totally obeying him. And sickness and death under his authority. God has given him the name which is above every name. God has highly exalted him. So you got mountain, worship, faith and doubt, authority. Fifth, discipleship. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple, simply put, is a follower of Jesus. So what is discipleship? It is following Jesus. A lot of Christians have taken the term discipleship and made it into an activity they do with people and it puts over here and puts it in a box. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Discipleship is following Jesus. And so to make disciples, it means that a follower of Jesus helps other people become followers of Jesus and love and know and follow him, serve him. What we found in Matthew's gospel is that to be a disciple, according to chapter 10, verse 25, is to be like Jesus. Jesus says the disciple will be like his master. And also, chapter 12, verse 49, that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you belong to Jesus' family. You're part of the family of God. That's why we say that. So mountain and worship and faith and doubt and authority and discipleship. And number six, nations. Huge theme in Matthew, the nations. The nations came to him at his birth, if you think about it, in the people of the wise men. Chapter 8 says the nations will gather around Abraham at the judgment. Chapter 24 and 25 talk about it at the, in the last days, at the final judgment, all the nations will be gathered. So it wasn't something brand new when Jesus said, by the way, go and make disciples of all nations. The prophets had been speaking about this for a long time, that the nations would hear, that the ends of the earth would hear and see the glory of God. So nations is a big theme in Matthew. Number seven, baptism. He says, baptize them. Now, that's one of the things that we downplay in the evangelical church, to our, to our shame, really, to our regret. Baptism is not one of those things where you can say, hey, I came to know Christ, and if and when I get around to it, and I want to, I will be baptized. Jesus says, go and baptize it, make disciples, and baptize them. Baptism is basically where someone gives their statement of intent as a follower of Christ. They say, I belong to Jesus and I fully surrender to him I like to liken it like in a wedding ceremony when when you give the ring when you give the ring and say you know what we're we're coming together as one and we're going to give each other a ring and it's just a sign and a symbol of of this this becoming one and and being committed to one another in marriage till death do we part well baptism is supposed to be basically like at the beginning of your life in Christ and saying you know what I'm all I'm all in for Jesus so there's a lot of disobedient Christians who have not been baptized and like, well, I haven't got around to it yet. I haven't wanted to do it yet. And Jesus says, you do it. So number seven, baptism. Number eight, the Trinity. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to point something out to you that 
In the name of is not in the plural, it is in the singular. In the name of God, who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. The Trinity is big. At the baptism of Jesus, you got the Father, you got the Son, and you got the Spirit descending as a dove. You've, it's a big theme. We have a triune God. And number nine, teaching. He is teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Again, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. He is teaching them. But not just the Sermon on the Mount. The whole Gospel of Matthew is organized around the teaching discourses of Jesus all the way through. I mean, those, those are kind of like the big pillars in Matthew. All of his teaching and preaching. So teaching. So you got mountain and worship and faith and doubt, authority, discipleship, nations, baptism, trinity, teaching, and one last one in the very last verse, verse 20, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God's presence. It's a big theme. The very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, you will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We're going to look at it next week in, in a Christmas sermon is the incarnation, the true meaning of Christmas. Every sermon should be a Christmas sermon. Every sermon on Jesus. Because it's when Jesus, it's telling us, Jesus came for the purpose to save sinners. God incarnate. But God's presence is a big in this gospel, and so it makes sense that he says, I am with you always. But check out that little phrase at the end, to the end of the age. Why? Because in context, he is sending them out to make disciples and basically disciple-making ends when Jesus returns. Your disciple-making ends when Jesus returns or you go to be with Jesus, whichever comes first. Have you stopped to think about that before? This go and make disciples, you can only do this while you're on earth. Once Jesus comes back, no more disciple-making. All the disciples have been made at that point. Anyone who's getting into heaven, that's it. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So he's going to be with us. And what he's saying is, while you're doing the things I want you to do, I am with you always. I'm giving you the strength. It's my work. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be protecting you. I'm going to be guiding you. All authority. I'm with you. It's a great sandwich. Okay? It's a great, great bookends. All right? Jesus' authority and his presence. So first, it's a conclusion, okay? It's a conclusion summarizing some dominant themes in Matthew. Why is that so important to me? Why do I want that to be so important to you? Because I don't want you to think of this as just some verses at the end that kind of bring up something new. No, this gospel has been saying these things all the way through. That's why the great, what is known as the Great Commission is really kind of the, the focal point of all of God's work that's summing up God's salvation program. So it's a conclusion summarizing some dominant themes. Now let's look at C2. We're not getting to commission yet. It's covenant. Covenant. It is a covenant concerning God's salvation program. Now it's not a contract that God is making. He's not saying, Jesus isn't saying, hey, disciples, gather together, and here's the deal. Um, I'll do this if you do that. Okay? Look, I'll give you some of my authority if you go and make some disciples for me and baptize them and teach them and, and I'll be with you if you're doing that. That's not what he is saying. This, I want you to see this as a covenant. A covenant is not a contract. And when, the way God makes covenants, this really is formatted a lot like God's covenant with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. 
When God identifies himself, when he instructs Abraham, and he assures Abraham that what he says will happen. God makes this unilateral covenant. It's kind of like when he was passing through the the, the halves of the animals, and he did it all by himself. Uh, If you were making a treaty or a covenant in those days, both parties would walk through together. uh, God walked through alone because he was making a unilateral covenant. What that means is it's not dependent on the other party. It's a promise to do something regardless of how the other other party messes things up. So if God was making a contract with us, we'd be toast, okay? We'd be messed up. It wouldn't be going on because uh, we would have broken it and, well, we didn't keep our half of the bargain, so it's over. This is a covenant, a unilateral, unbending decision that God is making. He is starting it and he says he will sustain it and finish it. So, first of all, the king identifies himself. He, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's identifying himself as the sovereign king over all. Then the king instructs his followers. Go make disciples and baptize them and teach them. And then he assures his followers, this is my work. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I initiated it. I empower it. I sustain it. I'll finish it. You see that? It's a conclusion summarizing some big themes, but it's also a covenant of God that's unilateral, it's unending, it is something God says is going to happen. Not dependent upon us. I don't know how many times I've heard challenges related to the, to the Great Commission, which is, if we don't go do it, no one will. And, and I get it, I, I get it, but really, is it really dependent upon us? Absolutely not. It is dependent upon the one with all authority and the one who is with us always to the end of the age. He's going to see this process on a, complete, on a completion. Faithful is he who calls you, who will also bring it to pass. God is at work in you both to will and do his good pleasure. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So it is a covenant. It's God's work, God's intent of what he will do and how he will use his chosen instruments. So it is a conclusion, it is a covenant And then we get to commission. And what I think is that if you can see this as a a, a conclusion to a bigger swath of teaching and really that sums up the entire Bible and a covenant that is relying upon God, then you'll be in the right mode to, to, to receive the commission of Christ's church and not take it on your own and think you're an independent contractor uh, building your own disciple factory somewhere. Okay? what we're able to do in Christ's strength. And by the way, it's not the only version of the Great Commission. Uh, Look in Mark chapter 16. We've got the Great Commission Mark style. If if your Bible has little headings before the paragraphs, then you might see in your Bible what I see in mine right now. Mark 16, right above verse 14, the Great Commission. Oh, it's somewhere else too. Let's see Mark's version. Verse 14, after he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. There's the doubting. Because they had not believed those who had saw him after he had risen. They didn't believe the story. That's why the Bible says, blessed are you who have not seen and have believed. First Peter even says, you, you have not seen him, yet you believe in him by faith that God gave you. Anyway, Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. There's Mark's 
Great Commission. You go over to uh, Luke chapter 24. Let's look at the Great Commission Luke style. This is an interesting one. This is embedded in the passage that, that uh, Doug uh, shared so well last week where uh, these guys are on the way to Emmaus and Jesus is opening their eyes and, recogni- and they can recognize him and he's telling them about himself in the scriptures. And verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And verse 47, here's Luke's great commission that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. By the way, John's even got his own great commission. John, uh, version of the great commission. John chapter 20, verse 21. It's very unique. It says, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's John's style of the great commission. But here we're looking at Matthew's. Now I want you to see something back in Matthew 28. So I've given you a conclusion that summarizes 10 themes, right? I've given you a covenant which is in three parts. But here's this commission, and the question is, hmm, how many parts does that have? If I asked you how many parts are in the Great Commission, you might come up with four or five. And I would tell you, you did your math wrong. Because there is one task in the Great Commission. One. If you looked in the original Greek, what you'd see is there's only one imperative here. Only one command. And that command is to make disciples. That is the one task of the Great Commission. Make disciples. Everything else serves that imperative. So there's all these ING words. You don't see it at the beginning because it says go and make disciples. It's really going, make disciples. And baptizing them, teaching. So you're going, it's assuming you're going, and you're making disciples. That's, that's the command. Make disciples. The only imperative in this passage. I like that. I mean, ten themes, that's a lot. Three parts, that's kind of, you know. But, but one task? I love it. We've got one hope in Christ and one task. What's that one task? Make disciples. Make disciples. Think about it. God set his mission in motion a long, long time ago way before we showed up on the scene. And the commission is that, that every disciple of Christ would be a disciple maker. Got that? Okay. The call is to enter into the process that he started and continues and will finish. It's like this. Every member of Christ's church is a disciple of Christ. If you're a believer, you're a disciple. And as such, you are to be a a Christ-loving disciple-maker. I love this. Let me point this out to you. Like I mentioned before, the bookends. Authority and and the presence of God. Again, it's that cool sandwich here. Okay, that, that's the bread. Uh, God's authority, God's presence. And, and, and God's grace basically accomplishes everything in us and through us. I want you to notice the, the extraordinary alls. All. Uh, in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. First you got all authority belongs to Jesus. See that? He says in verse 18, all authority 
is mine. So all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. And then all nations are to be reached. He says, make disciples of all nations. And then disciples are to identify fully with God in all his triune glory by being baptized. But identify fully in all his glory, all of God. It says to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of God. Everything he is. And then disciples are to obey, he says, all that I commanded you. All of Jesus' commands are to be obeyed. Uh, Total obedience is called for. And then disciples are assured of Christ's all-encompassing presence. Jesus literally says, I am with you all the days. I'm with you all the days. So what we, we're trusting in God's alls, basically. It's big because it's God's work. I don't know how many times I could say that. It is big because it is God's work, not ours, God's. And it is beautiful because it is for His unmatched, unparalleled glory. As the church known as Grace Church of Orange, we should aspire to grow just like the early church did. In fact, every church should aspire to grow just like the early church did. Now, most churches I know, including ours, get most of our growth from what is called transfer growth. I mean, a new church starts across town and all these people go to it and they're like, wow, we have this many people. Yeah, they came from all these other churches. What we should be aspiring for is to grow like the early church did. How did they grow? By people becoming disciples of Jesus. By disciple making. Then growing in Christ. We want to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel? We must do that then. We must purposely engage in giving the gospel and living the gospel in such a way that people get incorporated into this into this body of people, this family called Grace Church of Orange, and we make disciples by building relationships and proclaiming the gospel and then demonstrating the power, the transformed life that we have in Christ. Not by saying, hey, I'm the most perfect specimen you've ever seen of a disciple, but by giving the real picture, by being real with each other, and then sacrificially serving Jesus. That is, that is our intent, that should be our intent, and that falls right in line with these verses. Who makes disciples? God makes disciples. But wait, it says, go and make disciples. Yeah, as his instrument. Jesus said it. <laughs> Jesus said, go and make, all authority is mine, I'm with you always, now go do this. I'm going to do it through you, basically. It's God who is at work in you, like I said before, to will and do his good pleasure. So don't make your own disciple-making factory somewhere out in the boonies, okay? Get into God's program with this. And, and remember this, when God makes a disciple, he makes a new person, not a nice person. Now that new person might be kind. They might be what you would call nice. But the idea is that if we were in charge of disciple-making, we would get people and dress them up a certain way and have them act a certain way. And we'd say, look, there's a disciple. Because we couldn't transform their heart. We could just tack things on to how they act. See, God in the, in, in the middle of the process, he transforms. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. 
New people, remember, not nice people. I like the way that C.S. Lewis put it. He says, we must not suppose that if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. The gospel transforms lives. Are you awake? Are you here with me? Tell me, please, tell me you're here. Thank you. Whew, I was beginning to wonder. All right. The gospel transforms lives. There is so much that's been written about the gospel. Here's what Jeremiah Burroughs says. The gospel of Christ in general is this. It is the good tidings that God has revealed concerning Christ. More largely, it is this. As all mankind was lost in Adam and became the children of wrath, put under the sentence of death, God has thought upon the children of men and provided a way of atonement to reconcile them to himself again. Simply put, Jesus took our place on the cross and he died the death that we deserved and he, because of our sin, and he satisfied the wrath of God. So everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The promise not only of forgiveness of all their sins, but no condemnation. Do you realize what that is? No condemnation. You will not be condemned for your sins. And, and, and that God is conforming you to the image of Christ. And that you are kept by the power of God for a salvation that will be revealed. That you are kept by the power of God because you couldn't keep yourself in Christ. I can't keep myself in Christ. God keeps me in Christ. Christ keeps me in Christ. Do you agree? Okay, just checking. I know you do. By the way, some people are introverts. Some are extroverts. So introverts should be introverts and extroverts should be extroverts and you don't have to pretend like you're one or the other. Okay? But be yourself. Don't think you have to be a certain way because everyone here is a certain way. Okay? Promise? Promise? Pinky promise. <laughs> we can do pinky promises in third hour. As often as we want. Okay. It's the way it goes. Last page. Now, what I should say, what I should say is, lock the doors. No, what I should say, what I should say is at this point, it would only be right for me to put on my big boy pants and humbly and boldly land the plane. But I got one more page. So I'll do it. Here we go. Let's talk about making disciples. Okay, I want to talk about making disciples. Let's get a little more specific here, okay? Where, where should you make disciples? Okay, here's what the Bible says. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Okay, go and make disciples of all nations. So you got the whole world to play with, right? Is that, is that right? The whole inhabited world to play with, which we know is round, not flat. So we can go to the ends of the earth. But here's, here's what I'll tell you. Where you should do it? Anywhere and everywhere, starting at home base. See, Jesus says you'll, that you should preach the gospel. In Mark, he said, preach the gospel to everyone starting in Jerusalem. Think about throwing a pebble in a pond and the ripples going out. So 
Here's your life, here's your, your household, here's your small group, here's the church, here's the community, there's the world. Okay? So don't leapfrog over any of those first ripples to go just reach the world. Okay? Good thing there was no one down there because the spit just went. I call this, oh, you don't know this, but I call this the spit zone down here. So if you ever want to wear a raincoat, just come right down here. Just like the Shamu show and all that stuff. Tell you, you're so glad that you came to third hour today. I know you are. I'm so glad this isn't going on the internet. Did someone hear something? There's this little buzz that keeps going. Okay. All right, here we go. Um, don't leapfrog your household, the church, or community. And, you know, I talk about family discipleship, household discipleship. If you're going to be a disciple maker, you better start in your own home. Um, follow Jesus in the con- if family discipleship, household discipleship is following Jesus in the context of the group you live with. Okay, if you live at home alone, then you're your closest friends. Okay, all right. So, but I want to say something to husbands and parents, and it's not even Father's Day or Mother's Day. Um, husbands, if they want to be disciple makers, must establish themselves and, in many cases, reestablish themselves in their wives' eyes. Not in their eyes, because we always think we do better than we do. In their wives' eyes, as their wives' loving servant, protector, and provider. And parents must establish themselves, or in some cases, reestablish themselves, in their children's eyes, their kids would know this, as the primary teacher of the faith. If your kids are still at home. They're all grown and stuff. They're supposed to leave and cleave if they're married. Okay? But if you've got kids at home, you've got you to gotta establish yourself or even maybe reestablish yourself as the primary teacher of your kids. If you want to make disciples, remember the concentric circles and from you all the way out, okay? Now, how do you make disciples? I want to give, by the way, more on this in the coming months, okay? But one through five, I'll give you five things, how to make disciples. What does it take? Okay, number one, it takes your time. You got a smartphone on you? you, got a, you, you wear, I'm wearing a, I wear a watch. And I wear my smartphone. So I have two clocks on me. Do you have a, you have a schedule? You got anything going on today? You got any uh, appointments this week? Well, it will take your time to make disciples, which means you might have to say no to some other good things in your life to do the best thing. Just make disciples. So it'll take your time. You must invest it wisely. Everyone's got the same amount of time. Some people are much more wise with their time and some people are much more efficient with their time. But either way... You need to make disciples, and it's going to take your time. It's going to cost you your time. Number two, it's going to cost you, it's going to take you your life. First Thessalonians 2.8 says, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. That's you to me. That's uh, people in here to you. That people become very dear to you. You're very dear people to me. So I want to not only give you the gospel, but I want to interact with your life. Some of you more than others. I, I, that's just the way it works out, right? But your life. If, if when Jesus says, go, he assumes you're going, that you're focused on this, you're taking time to do it. He says, go make disciples. So, real ones. <laughs> but then he says, baptize. Well, that means total commitment, total surrender. I think there's a lot of people in American churches who are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. And they're not. They have invited Jesus to follow them. I think there are a lot of people in that category. 
that say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm totally committed to Jesus. But they've really just invited Jesus to kind of come along in their life. If, 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 you're, if you're really um, giving your life in service to Jesus, you will give of yourself and you will disclose of yourself to those nearest and dearest to you. In fact, people won't say about you, well, I've known them for 10 years, I don't know anything about them. Because you will share, you will, you will do self-disclosure to a select number of people. And you will, you will obey Jesus and you will confess your sins and you'll repent of your sins and you'll serve and you'll give. That's just what disciples do. Number three, it's going to take the gospel. You have got to get to the gospel. Oh, I'm just going to build relationships. Well, good, you'll be a nice friend helping people go to hell, okay? You, you need to get the gospel out there, the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Paul says that's what does its work in us. It's the dynamite of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. Dunamis, dynamite, <laughs> where we get our word. It, it's, it's, it's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. God's word, it does it work in you who believe does its work in you proclaim the gospel to all people number four it's going to take love not a weak word i don't mean like oh love i mean god's love i mean jesus loving people through you he says teach them to obey that's saying hey total obedience that's required so you're going to forgive you're going to reconcile that's really loving things to do you're not going to just pursue individual or household discipleship or well-being or security you're going to say man i want to serve this community i want to evangelize unbelievers if you were trying to escape a burning building you you wouldn't just go for yourself right you would take someone with you what if you were trying to get off of a a sinking ship wouldn't you try to rescue someone grab somebody and here's one more thing i want to mention i don't i can't remember if i mentioned it because i've said it twice at least today i might have said it earlier today so if not so if i did it's the second time but about unity you know you know why unity is so important it's not everyone thinking the same way it's everyone working in the same direction it's everybody working together did you notice what jesus didn't do hey john and peter we're gonna have some one-on-one exit interviews right did i say that already no okay well um i did in first and second service uh no like he didn't take them one by one and say let's have a one-on-one time a uh, little one-on-one discipleship time with Jesus and I'll tell you what, what's going to happen next. No, it's this what's going to happen next with my people. So take someone with you when you do this. Don't go alone all the time. We're not solo artists. We're not um, independent contractors. One thing I love about this church is that it, I, I see this church taking big steps in the right direction often when, in that regard of being the body of Christ together and modeling that. I love that. Um, last thing i'll mention is intent it's going to take if you do make disciples it will mean you want to make disciples because if you want to you will do you don't do anything you don't want to do everyone does what they want to do and you look at the ing words and jesus is saying you're going you're baptizing you're teaching so do those things decide that you want to do those things if you're not doing those things right now in your life Say, I'm going to make disciples. I'm going to do this. I want to do this. In God's strength, I, I resolve to do it. I love Paul's resolve. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. He says, I will most gladly, there's the intent, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's a disciple maker talking. That's a, a former hater who turned into a lover of Jesus and went to the ends of the earth to tell a story that he tried to destroy in his earlier life. 
you know, it could cost you your life. Um, someone just sent me this, um, this uh, email this week. Somebody from here at, at Grace. And it says, um, it's, a, it's an email that was forwarded to them on Thursday. And it says, it's with tears in our eyes that we share this latest news with you for prayer. We received the sad news yesterday evening that one of the Central African Bible translators, Elise Zama of the, of the Manja team, was killed during the fighting that took place in Bangui. He was shot while attempting to get his family to safety at a hospital compound. He leaves behind a widow and three young children. It makes us sad, but we remember Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, the death of his saints. Um, but the reason I share this with you besides that is, is for the paragraph that, uh, that Ryan Watson sent me. Here's what he said. I couldn't help but think of your message this coming Sunday on the Great Commission and the cost associated with it. In our area of the world, Christians tend to be concerned about image, where in other areas of the world, Christians are concerned about their lives. That, I guess, is what makes the Great Commission so great. Not just because of its sheer size, but because it is sometimes dangerous to be bold in faith. It is amazing to me how much that one phrase, go and make disciples, has changed and will continue to change this world. Should have had Ryan preach today, huh? Um, Jesus said, I have all authority. Jesus said, I am with you always. So this is not, making disciples is not so much what we do for others as it is a God-ordained and God-sustained process that he does through us. Okay. I think the worship team is going to come out if they're still here. And uh, let's pray. They're almost here. I'll give you a quote then. One writer said this, To believe the gospel is a task far beyond the poor resources of corrupt human nature. And I'll quote you Herman Melville from Moby Dick. He said, Heaven have mercy on us all, for we are all dreadfully cracked about the head and desperately in need of mending. So I know it is easy to feel overwhelmed with life. I know it is easy to feel overwhelmed with, even with Jesus' commission to us. But Jesus Christ is Lord. So you know what I like, OGK, right? Only God knows. Only God knows how he is going to use us in this process. The only job we have is to be intent on it, to resolve that we will be a part of it. Lord, thank you for this time, and I thank you that we can stand back in awestruck wonder and worship Jesus, the risen Lord, the, the coming Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would use us whatever small or big ways that you desire for your glory, for others' good, and for Jesus and the gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen.